Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Now, if you do happen to be listening to this as it comes out, and you own a calendar, you may have noted today is April 1st. Now, last year on this date, we released a special episode of Loosen Up the Offense, where Ed and Gary talked about the geriatric gangrene jujitsu gerbils. And I've had a few people reach out and ask if we were doing another one of those this year. And I thought about it, and we're not going to do that right now. For a number of reasons. Uh, Two is that number of reasons that there are. One is just a matter of logistics. It's more difficult for me to make something like that when the person I'm working with isn't in the same room as me. And B, I just kind of am not feeling the whole April Fool's Day thing right now. Seems like maybe enough expectations of normal life have been subverted lately that we kind of don't need to do that, and maybe not the best time to playfully, whimsically betray people's confidence. That being said, I did really enjoy making Loosen Up the Offense and totally reserve the right to do something like that later this year when you least expect it. But for today, regular ass episode. Anyway, as I was saying before I interrupted myself, hope you guys are having a great time. Me? Ah, I'm doing okay. Like I suspect a lot of people have, I've been watching a lot of streaming content lately, and the other day that led to me making a mistake. I watched Wild Wild West. Now, in addition to that being a mistake for the obvious reasons, I think it may have also broken my Netflix algorithms. Because the next day I noticed a new category popped up, and that category was... Because you watched Wild Wild West, you might enjoy. And the first three movies that it listed for me were Tremors 4, The Lobster, Police Academy 3. So at first I interpreted that as Netflix basically saying, I don't fucking know, man. You're making some choices. I thought I knew you, but if you're going to watch Wild Wild West, you're capable of anything. Maybe you want to watch a Police Academy sequel? Maybe you want to watch a Greek magical realism art film. I don't fucking know. Have fun with that. I'm going home. But as I thought about it more, another possibility occurred to me. One that's even more disturbing. I think maybe my Netflix account has developed sentience and thinks I have a crush on it. Because when I was in high school, if I was going to the video store and I wanted to watch a Police Academy movie... I would then scour the rest of the video store looking for some kind of a highbrow art film to balance it out and maybe lend the impression that I was renting the Police Academy movie for a friend or maybe younger sibling. Then I would try to find some kind of an indie cult film as a third movie so that I could really convey to the clerk that I was a well-rounded, interesting person that they would probably like to fall in love with and hug and kiss. Now, surprisingly, this technique never worked. But I'm pretty sure my Netflix account thinks that's what I'm doing with it. So it's giving me the out. It's saying, look, we both know you want to watch Police Academy 3. 
but let's both pretend you're a more interesting, better-rounded person than that. Okay? So, anyway, I'm probably going to watch Police Academy 3 later. I think that's the one that Bobcat Goldthwait first shows up in. Now let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Osvaldo Ayola. One, two, three, a podcast with Hub and Corey. And because we always insist, here's a comic synopsis. Y-O. Thanks, Osvaldo. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 17, February 1986. For better... For worse. Written by Marv Wolfman, drotted by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Bob LaPan, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call Starfire Nightwing Jericho That's all! I mean, I guess we could count Starfire's little brother Ryander, but I don't know. Like, does that guy even eavesdrop? Previously in the New Teen Titans. When she was 12 years old, Starfire's dad, King Meander, sold her into slavery to placate some farty space Godzillas and keep them from attacking his planet Tamaran. Starfire eventually escaped her captors, but has been exiled from Tamaran ever since, lest her return provoke the gassy slave-mongering lizards with whom her shitty dad had negotiated an uneasy truce. An indeterminate amount of comic book time later, Coriander and her fellow Teen Titans managed to stop by her homeworld for a brief trip, during which she apparently killed her evil sister, the objectively awesome named Commander, who went by the significantly less awesome codename Blackfire. But ever since then, the spicy space princess had been banished to Earth and low-key homesick. Then, just a few weeks ago, a Tamaranian spaceship swung by Earth to tell Coriander that the war was over and it was safe to swing home for a visit. Starfire was delighted at the prospect of seeing her shitty space dad again, and leapt at the chance, taking her boyfriend Nightwing and buddy Jericho along for the ride. But unbeknownst to our spacefaring super teens, there was an ulterior motive behind King Meander's invitation. Tamaran was mired in a civil war, and in order to unify the planet, the placation-prone potentate had promised that Starfire would marry the Prince of the Southern States. The dashing young Captain Karras, who I call Captain George Papadopoulos for admittedly spurious reasons. When she found out about this, Starfire was dismayed by her duplicitous dad's deal-making, and Captain George Papadopoulos wasn't thrilled about the arrangement either, but they both agreed to go along with the marriage in order to broker a planetary peace. Nightwing was understandably upset about his girlfriend's newly impending nuptials and stormed off to sulk, so Jericho and Starfire's younger brother Ryan Durr decided to cheer the angsty acrobat up by taking him on an agricultural tour of Tamaranian farm country. Great plan! Unfortunately, during the course of their agrarian excursion, the trio of tourists were captured by an army of rebel forces, led by none other than Starfire's not-so-dead-after-all sister, Commander! The reprobate Regal Revenant had been fomenting dissent amongst the citizens of Tamaran, and was planning to seize her capitulation-inclined father's throne. As a tearful Starfire prepared for her unwanted wedding, her evil sister's forces marched towards the capital, bearing Jericho, Ryander, and Nightwing as their prisoners. Gadzooks! Will Starfire and Captain Papadopoulos actually go through with their wedding ceremony? Can our heroes escape in time to warn the royal family about the rebel attack? 
And is there a worse possible way to distract yourself from relationship problems than farm tourism? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Yes. Well, technically they do escape in time to do that, they just don't do it. And, yes, attending your girlfriend's wedding. Princess Commander is having a pretty great day. First she captured her younger brother and his two pals and tied them up, and now she's marching towards the city at the head of a throng of devoted worshippers who are chanting her name. She thinks to herself how nice it is to be appreciated, and that at first she just wanted to be queen of the planet so that she could be evil on a bigger stage, but now she's starting to think she'd be pretty good at running things. I mean, she's still totally evil, but seeing as her dad is such a shitty king, she figures that the planet really would probably be better off with her on the throne as a not-so-benevolent dictator. I mean, honestly? Maybe. The aspiring empress addresses her acolytes and is like, such a bummer that my dad's a total wuss and a jerkhole. Can you believe he's making my sister marry that Papadopoulos guy? And that he sold her to those fart lizards? Dick moves, dad. Her followers are like, Yeah, fuck that guy. Fucking sucks. We hate him. Ryan Durr is tied to some sticks alongside Joe and Dick and is being carried around by the crowd. He listens to this pep rally and is like, Look, nobody's saying dad doesn't suck, but you're evil as heck. I mean, back when the war was going on, you were totally on Team Fart Lizard. You tried to blow up the planet. Commander is like, n no, nuh-uh, I was, um, only pretending to like the slave-mongering Godzillas so that I could, uh, you know, learn their pin numbers and such. I would never do evil stuff for real. Uh, Tamaran, Tamaran, Tamaran. Ryan Durr has heard enough. He's like, first of all, PIN stands for personal identification number, so saying PIN number is redundant. And second of all, fuck you! And with that, the hot-headed young prince generates a blast of magic space fire that shatters his bonds. He launches himself skyward and swipes his evil sister from the floating podium thing she'd been riding around on and carries her high into the air. Unlike the rest of her family, Commander is unable to fly, which is a bit of a sore subject, seeing as it was due to this inability that her parents decided she could never be queen and removed her from the line of secession to the throne. Man, even for a monarchy, that seems like a shitty and arbitrary rule. Self-contained flight is such a small percentage of international diplomacy. Ryan is like, Tell all these people you suck and that you're a liar, or I'm gonna drop you. Commander replies, Let me think that over. Nope! As this high-stakes extraterrestrial sibling rivalry unfolds in the air above them, Dick and Joe are still tied up. Joe is desperately trying to make eye contact with someone so that he can use his creepy-ass power to yoink their body for a minute, but no dice. After a few minutes of this, Dick asks if maybe Joey can hop into his body and then use his peepers to remote control a guard. Joe decides to give this a shot, and the chain reaction body snatching seems to work like a charm. Hooray! Joe uses the commandeered guard to free himself and Dick, and the two titans steal a hover car. When Ryan Durr sees that his new buddies are free, he tosses his sister to the ground. She lands on her butt and seems pissed off, but otherwise unharmed. When Ryan flies over and reconnects with his pals on their stolen space car, Dick is like, Uh, so... 
Seems like you had the evil leader of the enemy forces in your custody, and then instead of taking her prisoner, you humiliated her and returned her to her army. Any particular reason? Ryander replies, I thought it'd look cool. Fair enough. The trio of teenagers speed back to the capital city of Tamaris, intent on warning King Meander and his army about the impending attack that Reander's whimsy has just facilitated. Meanwhile, in the Temple of Zahal in Tamaris, the royal wedding of Princess Coriander and Prince George Papadopoulos is about to begin. Starfire's pretty bummed out, and so is her fiancé, but neither one of them feels like they have any choice. Then, just as the ceremony is about to get underway, Dick, Joe, and Ryan Durr burst into the room. Hooray! Ryan Durr yells, Quick, Father, I've got to warn you that... Oh, sorry, uh, didn't realize the service was about to start. It, it can wait. Uh, carry on. And with that, Nightwing, Reander, and Jericho sit quietly and politely and wait for the wedding to get underway, because I guess interrupting to say that armed forces are converging on the temple to kill us all would be rude. Wait, what? Okay. Starfire sees that Dick has arrived and kind of wishes he'd try to stop the ceremony, but when he doesn't, she takes his stoic commitment to courtesy as a sign of his apathy towards her. Ouch. The ceremony largely consists of a space yeti in a fancy hat giving a little speech about how neat marriage is. Then, the bride and groom stand together on a golden pedestal and somehow get smushed together, combining Voltron style into a single, genderless, glowing being. Huh. You know, I never really regretted not having a church wedding before, but I gotta admit, that seems pretty fun. After a few minutes of this, the Space Yeti says they're married, and Starfire and George Papadopoulos separate back into their previous bodies. Dick is super bummed out that his girlfriend is now space-married. He turns to Joe and starts to mope about it, but his sulking is interrupted by gunfire. Dick is like, Oh shit, that's right! Hey, guys, uh, Commander isn't dead, has an army, and is, well, inside this temple shooting at us. But you probably figured that out by now. Sorry, meant to give you a heads up, but you seem pretty busy. My bad. Starfire is kind of glad to have an outlet for her frustration and leaps into battle, but the bellicose bride soon notes that her father's guards seem surprisingly poorly trained. Nevertheless, she plows into Commander's forces and makes a beeline for her sinister sibling. In the pitched battle that follows, George Papadopoulos gets shot with a laser blast, but is only mildly injured. Many palace guards and rebel insurrectionists suffer a much more dire fate, and the casualties of war begin to pile up. Gotta be honest, though. I've been to worse wedding receptions. Starfire is pretty much kicking the shit out of her sister, when Blackfire is like, Hey, knock it off! Um, do you want to be co-presidents or something? Coriander is stunned and goes, Are you fucking kidding me? Commander wasn't so much kidding as banking on the fact that her sister would decline the offer. She figures the witnesses to the scene will think that she was trying to be kind and reasonable, and her sister was being violent and irrational. It's a pretty savvy political move on Blackfire's part. Or, it is until she follows it up with, Fine, then if you don't give up and let me be queen, I'll blow up the planet with the giant bombs my army planted everywhere. Seriously? Then what the fuck was the point of trying to appear reasonable a few seconds ago? You can't play good cop, bad cop if you're the only cop. The king and queen are like, 
Why are you so evil? And Commander replies, Because you guys suck. Now decide in the next two minutes whether to surrender or I blow up the planet. Meander heads out to the balcony and gives a little speech, asking the crowd, So I'm a pretty great king, right? I mean, I sacrificed my daughter's happiness for you guys and everything. Like, twice. Now that's leadership. Now my other daughter is saying that you guys would maybe rather she ran things, but that seems like a pretty kooky idea. I mean, she doesn't even have any kids, so who is she going to sell into slavery to appease our enemies? Like, a cousin or something? It just isn't the same thing, believe me, I've tried. Anyway, you guys still want me to be your king, right? Hey, Meander, don't you think it might be relevant to bring up the fact that if they choose you, they're all going to die in a fiery explosion in a few minutes? No? Okay, just checking. Turns out it's a moot point, because the crowd outside loudly cheers for Commander and tells her dad to get fucked. In subsequent pages, we find out that Blackfire's army was down there, beating up anyone who looked like they might voice support for Meander, but it kind of seems like Commander had the popular vote regardless. Tearfully, Meander cedes the throne to his evil daughter. The newly coronated Queen of Tamaran greets her public and delivers a speech that, no shit, contains several variations of the phrase, Make Tamaran Great Again. It's a little unsettling. Later that night, Commander chains up Meander, Starfire, Ryander, and her mom, who I guess is named Luender, but I had to look that up because I don't think anybody's ever mentioned it before, and loads them onto a spaceship. She beats the shit out of them and tells them how much they suck. Dick, Joe, and Papadopoulos watch helplessly from their prison cell as Commander broadcasts herself abusing her family to TV screens across the planet. When she feels that her prisoners have been sufficiently humiliated, Queen Blackfire teleports back to her throne room. She makes sure that her recent family reunion was televised, and then prepares herself to give the planet a little press conference. Once the tapes are rolling, she says, Hi there, Tamaran. It's me, your new leader. As you probably just saw, I put my family on a spaceship. It might seem like I'm mad at them, but I'm not. I love the poor slobs. I'm just sending them to Okara to get retrained as warriors so they could be tough and cool like me. Neat, huh? Let's check in on them via the cameras on board the ship. There they are, the weak and pathetic fools that I love and pity. Hope nothing happens to them. Wait, what's that? Looks like one of their guards is a spy working for those farty space godzillas we used to be at war with. Oh no! Those guys are threatened by me because I'm such a strong leader. I sure hope they don't try to hurt my family that, as I have just established, I love very much, despite the fact that you all saw me berate and physically abuse them a few minutes ago. Whoops, looks like we just lost our signal. Well, I'm sure everything will be fine. Let's just look at the ship from the outside on this other camera. I'm gonna go now. Bye! The feed abruptly cuts to an exterior shot of the spaceship. After watching for a few minutes, Queen Commander thinks to herself, So long, suckers. With grim determination, she pushes a button on her console. From the view screen in their cell, Papadopoulos, Nightwing, and Jericho watch in horror as the spaceship bearing Starfire and her family ignites in a fiery explosion. 
to be continued. Okay, so just to make sure I've got this straight. The villain of this issue is an orange-skinned megalomaniacal narcissist with outlandish hair who rises to power on a populist platform promising to make her planet great again and make sure that everyone is watching her on television before contradicting herself on back-to-back broadcasts. I don't know. I mean, I know this is science fiction and all, but it just seems so implausible. And my good-for-many-things brother Cory is finally back from his myriad of travails around the multiverse and its various dimensions. Just in time for us to responsibly practice social distancing. So, communicating with us live from his apartment is my good-for-many-things brother Cory. Cory, how's it going? Hey, it is going pretty good, all things considered. How are things on your end? Oh, you know. Yeah. I started uh, teaching Lisa to play backgammon. Oh, man, that reminds me of your grandpa. Yeah, me too. So that's been really fun. She won a game against me the other day and was asking if I had let her win. And I was like, oh, no, I would never let you win a game of anything. That's not love. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I told my mom about that. And she was just like, oh, you get that from both sides of your family. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Well, are you ready to talk about a comic book? Oh, man. Politics, love, struggle. It's got it all. Yeah, I'm ready. Let's let's, uh, jump in. Corey, what did you think of New Teen Titans number 17? I enjoyed it overall. It was, word-wise, pretty dense, I found. A little bit, I agree, but I gotta say, it had so many twists and turns, and... The art was so good and felt special again in a way that most of this series has and the last issue didn't, that I really got swept along with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was, it was a good read for sure. It was, it was engaging and uh, you just kind of want to find out what happens and then you get to the end and you're like, oh man, I gotta go to the newsstand and buy the next one. Yeah, there were a few swerves in the story where I think we kind of saw where the story was going leading up to this, but there were some surprises that seemed like maybe they were surprises to Wolfman as well. Mm. I feel like a lot of writers, when they are changing direction with the way their work is going, will try to do like improv tricks and like yes and themselves so they'll just be like okay yes i established that this was going this way and this other thing is changing the direction of it wolfman i feel like does instead kind of a ooh, never mind instead rather than a yes and it's a little jarring right yeah like the idea that starfire was up until today saying, Dick, this marriage isn't going to change anything between us. It's just a marriage in name only. It's not that big a deal. And then we see that the Tamaranian wedding ceremony is her and her intended get smushed together into a genderless being that merges their souls. And it's like, oh, if you knew that was happening, you would not have been downplaying the importance of this thing. I know. I I don't get it honestly. And also, there was no speak now or forever hold your peace bit, but Coriander sure made it sound like that would have been a thing. Yeah, no, there seemed instead to be a nobody speak now no matter what 
she was like wanting Dick to interrupt her, but everything else about the ceremony, including her brother Ryan Durr's reaction to showing up, would make it seem like no matter what, you cannot interrupt this ceremony at all, or I don't know, maybe things will explode. Yeah, or just like the overwhelming social pressure. It's like being in a giant elevator. <laughs> like you get in and you're just like, oh, totally. They are rushing to the city's capital because they have to announce that rebels are on the way with guns and bombs and are going to try to take the place over. And they rush into the ceremony that they know is taking place. And then when they get there, they're like, ooh, uh, never mind. I don't want to interrupt. And sit quietly through the entire ceremony. And then after the ceremony, when the rebels show up, are like, oh, shit, we forgot. We were going to tell you about this. It was so badly done. <laughs> Like, there had to be a way around that. <laughs> like, okay, Jericho can't speak, so, you know, maybe he was doing some gestures or things with his eyes to be like, hey, the rebels are coming. But, uh, you know, what's Dick's excuse? Other than, well, I guess he's just like, oh, I'm super sad now. Yeah, and Ryander, I guess, just doesn't want to make a scene? Mm -hmm. Where we saw earlier, he has no compunctions about making scenes, and he likes to make a big scene. Yeah, he can get off on melodrama. <laughs> With the best of them. His own words, not mine. Right? I honestly was shocked that the wedding actually happened. I was sure it was going to get called off at the last minute. And it seemed like the story was leading up to it getting called off at the last minute. But nope. Yeah, wedding went on ahead and then uh, some stuff happened and people we care about ostensibly uh, blew up. Yeah. I didn't see that coming. No, I didn't see that one coming either. So in some ways, it's nice to be surprised at where a story's going. But in other ways, it seems like the story wasn't going there and the writer is as surprised as I am, which is okay. But it's kind of a continuing problem that I have with some of Wolfman's stuff is that he will just kind of seem to forget where he was going beforehand. Like I said, instead of yes ending previous storylines, he ooh, never mind insteads them. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, when my friends and I were kids, like little like pre-tweens, pre trying to set up D&D &D campaigns and just constantly getting distracted by all the cool shit in this imaginary world so that nothing ever actually <laughs> got done. Exactly, yeah. That being said, he brings in some cool imaginary shit. And stuff got done. Yes, a lot of stuff got accomplished. We have some big changes to the Tamaranian ruling class here. It seemed like the characterization of Blackfire was pretty inconsistent, even within this issue. I had been speculating before that they had been building her up to be more of a conflicted villain with some noble intentions, and even the first half of this story seems to be headed in that direction. And then, halfway through it, she kind of pivots to just, like, full-on evil evil with a capital E. And... I think some of that is the book taking her in that direction, and I think maybe it was underlined or resonated with me in that way more, because she kept using variations on the phrase, make Tamaran great again. Oh my god. It, it was pal palpable, the, the <laughs> accidental parallels between... I was like, oh no! Stop it! This is supposed to be escapism! I know. Just need the red baseball hat. 
It would have to be a pretty goddamn big baseball hat. Oh, biggest we got. But I, I will say, it's not like Blackfire doesn't have any points. Like, she's not totally wrong in all of her shit. She has a legitimate gripe against her parents. I don't think you were here. I think it was Lisa that covered the origins of the Teen Titans miniseries with me. But that focused on Blackfire a bit, and we saw her story growing up. Her parents fucked her over pretty bad because she can't fly. Mm. Like, she was born with a disability, and they were immediately like, well, you can't rule the planet now, despite the fact that you're the oldest child. Sorry, I mean, how can you be a politician if you can't fly? Which is some bullshit. Yeah. And so I understand why she is upset with her parents. I mean, I I wish that the story, if we want to be sympathetic towards her parents, had been more along the lines of, like, they recognize, because she was also independently of that evil as a little kid, too. Mm. I feel like they could have just, like, oh, you can't rule the planet because you got those evil eyebrows, and I see where this is headed. You know? The the not flying thing seems like a particularly shitty twist on the story. Yeah, you think it was just a, the underlying thing is like it's easier to tell your kid like, oh, you're not good enough to do this than it is to tell them like you're just too evil. Um, maybe. <laughs> I don't know if that's a common thing. <laughs> I don't know. Whenever whenever it's come up in my life. I don't know. I don't have kids. <laughs> Maybe it is better to tell your kids, no, 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 no. It's not because you're evil. It's because you are just not good enough. <laughs> I don't think that's going to cut the evil tendencies off at the past. Yeah, that's, a, that's just a lose-lose type situation. I feel like it would have been way more understandable if they'd just been like, you know, you've killed a bunch of our pets. Which is another thing that she did. So, you know, between that and the Joan Crawford eyebrows, kind of seems like you're gonna be evil. Um, I'm just not comfortable having you be the planet's leader. Uh, Maybe wouldn't have broken any better for her, but I would feel more sympathetic towards her parents if they had made that decision. Yeah, or like uh, like a Dexter-type situation. It's like, well, might as well channel this somewhere useful. You know, we got all these enemies. Yeah, we need to pit you against John Lithgow. It's the only way. <laughs> yeah. Nothing else can defeat John Lithgow, so uh, we'll, we'll put it him and, uh, hey, go be evil over there. Yeah, scary evil kid. Ugh. Mm-hmm. So, many failings on uh, mom and dad. Um, I forgot their names. Meander? Meander? Meander, and I honestly don't know if we have ever learned Coriander's mom's name. Meander and... Uh... Queen... Uh, walkabout? <laughs> Wonderlust. Doesn't hold with the apostrophe game. Yeah. Not all who wander are lost. Or... <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it. Uh, meander and Queen Bumpersticker. <laughs> there we go. Meander and Queen Coexist Bumpersticker. Ugh, appropriate. So... When you saw that the title of this issue was For Better, For Worse, were you in part of your mind expecting it to be a comic strip with no jokes whose characters age in real time and sometimes a dog dies? <laughs> nope, I didn't make that connection, and that's, uh, I'm glad that you did. Okay, maybe that was just me. That's pretty good. You did read that comic strip, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I read all the comic strips that I could, and that one was in the Globe. But that one was one where I was just like, I thought these things were supposed to be funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a couple like that. There was that one. There was one that was like a... It was drawn kind of like a romance comic, but I think the guy was like a naturalist or something. Are you talking Mark Trail? Yeah. Oh, dude, you have got to check out those Mark Trails. Give them another chance. They are amazing and bizarre and unintentionally hilarious in some surprising ways. Like the guy really likes drawing animals and doesn't like drawing people. So sometimes there will just be animals in the foreground and then word bubbles coming from characters in the far background but it makes it look like the animals are talking and saying weird, banal things. Oh. There is also a Twitter account that is Drunk Mark Trail that you should definitely check out. They are pretty wonderful. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that since I was a kid, but I remember reading those, you know. And Ziggy, that's another one. You're just like, what the hell? I get that there's supposed to be a joke in here somewhere, but there isn't. But mostly it's just like, ah, oh, that poor blob just can't seem to catch a break. Uh-huh. Funky Winkerbean was another one. I feel like that one in the Globe, at least, they didn't even put that in the comic section. You had to, like, flip through the classifieds to get to it. Oh, man. It's because they spent all their creative energy on the title. Yep. There was a weird turn where Starfire, after her wedding, when Commander's forces attack the whatever the capital city is, Starfire leaps into battle, is immediately dismayed by how shitty all of her dad's guards have gotten since she's been gone. Mm -hmm. Which is maybe a little bit unfair because the last time she fought alongside them, she was like 12. So she probably had an inflated sense of how good they were compared to her. Like when I was eight, I thought my dad was an amazing basketball player. And he's not. He's just better than an eight-year-old. Sorry, Bruce. But she has a weird line where she's just like, Oh, when I heard that the rebels were coming towards the city, somebody said that you were in charge of them, and I prayed to Zahal that they were right. Why? Does she feel bad about having killed her? Does she wish she wasn't dead? Or is she just stoked at the opportunity to double kill her sister? Uh, option C, double kill. That is what she follows it up by, because she's just like, and now I'm gonna kill you. But if the two options are... She's dead because you already killed her, or you have to fight her again and potentially kill her again. I don't really see what the difference is. She's, I don't know, wants an outlet for being pissed off at the marriage she's been forced to undertake. and I guess that's fair. Wants to do some good old uh, fratricide. Sororicide, I believe. Oh. It'd be fratricide if she killed Reander. Oh. Which is, I guess, what... Right. Commander was trying to do. I guess that's uh, Latin in their gendered words. Yeah. Is it Latin or is it Greek? Yeah, Nobody well, knows for sure. I don't know much about Greek. I heard that they shake their head instead of nod to signify yes, but I don't know if that's true. And it's tzatziki instead of tahini. <laughs> those are completely different animals. What? I mean, different condiments. That's like, I mean, if you're going to compare... Uh, Remoulade and a Bernays or something. Fine, but... Okay, good. Well, there's my weekend. (laughs) (laughs) So, why do you think Commander sets up two planetary broadcasts that seem to contradict each other? She beats her parents and berates them and says, Haha, you guys are fucked. And then makes sure that that was broadcast 
and then does another broadcast immediately after that says, my parents aren't so bad and I'm not mad at them or anything. It's like, wait, what is happening? Oh, I somehow missed that. I, I, I got that she broadcasts like where she's backhanding um, Starfire. Mm-hmm. And berating her parents and yelling at them and saying, you never loved me. Oh, yeah. You're always jealous and that jealousy turned you mad, her dad says. Yeah, that's like a bad move to show all your followers that you, you might be, you know. Imbalanced and evil? Yeah, don't show them that. You wouldn't think that would be a winning move. I think maybe they had to do that so that they could show that Dick and Joe watched that happen. Dick, Joe, and I guess that must be Captain Papadopoulos who's with them, but I kept getting confused and thinking it was Reander. Did you have any of that problem, mixing up those guys towards the end? Yeah, in fact, I just assumed it was Reander, but I guess it makes more sense it would be Papadopoulos. Yeah, because Reander's got to be on the ship with his parents and stuff. Like, the whole royal family, I think, is there. And I think there was maybe some confusion with the creative team on this, too, because in the cell at the end, you got the brown hair, which I think is signifying Papadopoulos, on one page, and then on the end page... He's now got the red hair showing that it's Reander. And I think just between that confusion and the fact that we had kind of gotten used over this issue and the last one, seeing Dick, Joe, and Ryan as a trio, mm-hmm. I would have just liked a little bit of disambiguation there. And they're drawn basically the same. Right. You have to tell them apart by hair color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the hair color keeps changing. Yeah. And also, they removed Papadopoulos's cape in the jail scene so i mean that makes sense just like ryander there you don't want to let a guy have a cape in prison oh i think that's just kind of kind on their part i think putting a guy in a jail cell while he's still wearing a cape is cruel and unusual punishment the other guys aren't going to treat him well with that oh i thought you were saying because the like a suicide risk oh maybe i i hadn't thought that dark although i guess him being abused by other prisoners isn't exactly lighthearted. <laughs> wow, the pair of us. <laughs> what did you think of King Meander's big speech to his uh, his followers trying to appeal to their sense of loyalty? <laughs> it's so bad. He's just like, so what do you guys want to do? I mean, <laughs> it's cool either way, I guess. Kind of a bummer. He's so whiny in it, too. He's like, you guys think I did a good job, right? I mean, I went through so much. I sacrificed and I was so hard. It was so hard for me. You guys want me to be your leader, right? It's like, you know, you're not making a great case for yourself. Mm -hmm. It's weird, too, how they show Commander's followers in the early stages of the comic book. The comic is making the case that the population of the planet is almost universally incredibly frustrated with Meander's rule. We see that Commander's followers are feeling that way. The southern states, even Ryander admits, have been feeling that way, which is why this shitty forced marriage has to take place. There's this huge dissent amongst the populace But then they go out of their way once Commander does start trying to take control to show that she is artificially manufacturing that by threatening people that if you don't 
cheer for her will kill you. It seems like that's unnecessary. Yeah, I don't really know why they did that other than to create a delineation between the sentiment of these thousands and thousands of people is been misplaced in, you know, somebody that's going to do a bad job. Yeah, I, I guess it does seem like they're just kind of like doubling back and being like, well, I know we made it seem like she had a point, but remember, she's evil. Yeah, exactly. How'd you like the cover of this thing? Oh, man, I thought the cover was outstanding. It is an amazing cover. It's really, really good. There's definitely a difference between her wedding outfit on the cover and on the inside, but I think that kind of makes sense. If you're trying to sell the book and have a shorthand for this is Starfire's wedding and some bad shit happened at it, the outfit on the cover looks a little bit more like a traditional wedding dress than her wedding bikini and peekaboo crotch curtains that are, I guess, part of the Tamaranian traditional wedding garb inside. So just as a visual shorthand, it's effective. And also, there's just so much detail and so much emotion in that cover. It's just so good. It is super good. She looks like she is sad and angry and about to really do some damage with her star bolts. Mm-hmm. And also, just as an editorial note, on the off chance that this is somebody's first episode that they've listened to, please see the previous episodes about what Hub means by peekaboo crotch curtains. I think it's pretty obvious. That's an industry standard term. The wedding industry? <laughs> yeah, wedding attire. Oh, okay. Bridal gowns. Mm. That's not really my area of expertise. Okay, never mind. The editor's note retracted. The fact that it seems kind of retconned at the end aside, Princess Commander's ultimate plan for her family, pretty clever. Yeah. Like, if you take out the part where she broadcast herself beating her parents and berating them and whining at them, the second broadcast that she does where she's just like, Look, they're just misguided and, you know, weak and cowardly fools, but they're not really bad people. So I'm going to send them to Okara and have them do some warrior training, have them, you know, recommit to their Tamaranian roots, and then we'll find a place for them. And then setting up the guard turning on them and seeming to corroborate her story that she had been, like, an undercover agent in the Citadel when she was there. I thought that whole thing was really cleverly executed by her. Yeah, and also in her defense, I think it's it's entirely possible that that broadcast of her uh, beating up the royal family is taking place inside of the, the ship where uh, Dick and Joe and Papadopoulos are being held captive for their benefit and, and not to the masses as the second broadcast is depicted actually no Corey. she she does say explicitly immediately after that was my broadcast shown across tamaran did the people see everything and the guy says yes princess not a moment was lost and she says i wish i'd better curbed my temper but i'll remember that next time oh geez yeah yeah you're right well shit yeah bad move bad move but i guess nice recovery from it I'll just do another video. Yeah, directly contradicting the last one, where I'm calmer. Yeah. In terms of the themes that run through this, 
there was in the past a lot of it was this question of what do you sacrifice for the greater good Mm -hmm. that one seems not so much explored here but but there was i felt like with the fake marriage between two people that love other people this bit of talking about what is the the price of power and that is that you have to sacrifice your own happiness yeah was seemed to be the argument that they were setting up and man i just felt like that was really shitty for starfire because she's already endured so much due to you know basically external forces that she doesn't have control over oh absolutely and it is especially disheartening when her sister correctly points out and it was all for nothing because now i'm in power you did it for no reason Mm -hmm. that sucks man that is really harsh yeah it's left me just feeling sad for her character yeah yeah it is really devastating for her and i mean for Dick, too, although I have a lot less sympathy for him. Mm-hmm. I think part of that is maybe a narcissism of small differences thing, where you find faults that you have in yourself most frustrating when you see them in others. And yeah, his emotional closed-offness and inability to vocalize his feelings really did fuck him over in this in a way that just made me really angry at him and... uh Maybe it's because I can identify with that in a way. Yeah, but also it was, for me, there was some contradictory emotion because in the the last couple issues, I was pissed off at him for being like, you can't do this fake marriage because, you know, it it will change everything even though you say it won't. And I was like, just hear her out, you know, maybe it'll be fine. She's going to come back to Earth later or whatever. Yeah. And now in this issue, I'm like, God damn it, why didn't you yell and say something? (laughs) I kind of switched my position. Yeah, there's... So many feelings. Yeah. That big statue of, I don't know if it's Zahal or somebody, is pretty badass. We have gathered here in the presence of a pissed off naked lady (laughs) to smush these two Tamaranians into one Captain Planet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, the Captain Planet thing is really spot on. I didn't actually make that connection before now. Well, when their powers combine. I wonder if those were the words to the ceremony that we missed before Joe and Dick and Ryan bust into the temple and do their, oh, sorry, didn't know you were busy. We'll wait. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Joe, is this the first confirmation we get that he can do a chain reaction possession? Like that from someone else's body, he can take over another person's body? Yeah, I think it's the first time that we've uh, seen that. It was news to uh, to Robin. Yeah, it was. It was weird because I thought we had seen him do that before, like in even some of the early battles that he was just flitting about. But I guess it's good to know for sure that he can. And I guess on account of Dick still being tied up, he didn't get to make him punch himself in the face or do a silly dance, which is a bummer. (laughs) But oh, well, it still seems like a missed opportunity. It does. Yeah. Maybe once he was free, it was cut for time because they were too busy escaping, but he probably made him do at least a little, like, shuffle step. I like to think so. Yeah. Well, Corey, I think it's time for my favorite new part of the show. A word from our sponsors. All right. <laughs> Hey, Corey, what would you say is the single biggest problem you have in your life right now? Oh, that's easy. 
I remember really liking Marvel's 1984 miniseries Secret Wars, but I don't really remember what happened in it. Gosh, I think that's a problem we've all suffered from from time to time. Now, what would you say is your second biggest problem? Mm, I guess the fact that I'm dangerously out of touch with today's youth culture. Yeah, I can understand that. Kids today... I don't know if they still like hamburger sandwiches and dungarees, or are they eating Tide Pods and dabbing? Doing the whip and the nay-nay. YOLO! <laughs> oh, no. But what would you say if I told you there was a single solution to both of those problems? Well, that would be amazing. But how? Corey? There is a new podcast that can solve both of those problems. A podcast? But aren't those just for MMA enthusiasts and former speechwriters trying to sell me boner pills and mattresses? They always used to be, but now there's Marvel Mashup, the ploy for toys. Marvel Mashup, the ploy for toys? That's right, Marvel Mashup, the ploy for toys. It's a brand new podcast that is by Josh Bickford and his two sons, Graham and Lucas. They take a look at the 1984 series Secret Wars, which was designed to sell toys for Marvel, and go over it and examine each issue and record it for our benefit. So you get to hear what the younger generations seem to think of this older comic book, and you get the guidance of their dad, Josh. It's a lot of fun, and a heartwarming adventure in family entertainment. Presented in a format reminiscent of, but according to my lawyers, legally dissimilar from this show. Well, Marvel Mashup, the ploy for toys, sounds cool, but will it work for me? Won't I have to, I don't know, buy a lot of fancy new devices to listen to it on? No, 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 Corey, you can listen to it on whatever device you're using to listen to this podcast. To this podcast? That's right, this podcast. Tighten up the defense. Don't forget about us. We're still here doing great having a podcast. Woo! But you can listen to Marvel Mashup, the ploy for toys on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, any of the applications you use to listen to this show. It's just that easy. I'll listen to it today. And if you do, you'll You'll get get a a big big delight delight in every listen. listen. To Marvel Mashup, the the ploy ploy for for toys. Seriously, I checked out this podcast. It is a lot of fun. It is really sweet. And Josh Graham and Lucas make great hosts. And it's a really fun family to spend some time with. And I would recommend that you do that. Now, Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts. We got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, what do you feel like starting off with, Corey? Let's talk about insults. Okay, let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a Bozo do you want to talk about? All of mine came from Starfire. One we already touched on, and that's the fact that when she, after the wedding, is attacked, is just really disappointed at the fighting abilities of her guards and calls them so-called warriors, which, if I'm familiar now with Tamaran, a, a pretty harsh thing to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
pretty harsh zinger. My favorite came from Blackfire, and it's almost passive-aggressive. It's when she has her address to the general populace as her parents are about to get blown up, and she says, My parents were poor, deluded fools whose only crime was cowardly weakness. Oh, ouch. That's such a good diss. I think especially on Tamaran. Yeah. I feel like there that's saying, like, their only crime was the worst crime imaginable by us. Their only fault was that they were stupid idiots. Yep. But then uh, Starfire gets a little zinger back at Blackfire when she's in the midst of a battle. She says, back off, butchers. Who commands you? Where's your cowardly leader? So she throws a little cowardly bomb back at her sister. Pretty good. Who did you have as your president of the drama club? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion in this issue? Oh man, this was almost neck and neck for me between Dick and uh, Ryander. I agree. Yeah, who did who did you choose? I had to come down on the side of Ryander just because he basically said, please pick me, please pick me. <laughs> for getting off on being melodramatic. Yes, he is in a pitched battle with his sister and is threatening to throw her down to the ground after humiliating her in front of her followers. Instead of taking her captive or tying her up, he just tosses her at the ground and says, Don't worry, Commander, you won't die. But if you come anywhere near Tamaris, you won't get off so easily next time. And Dick says, Wasn't that a little foolish, Reander? She's got a large following and she's really mad. And Ryan says, Hey, if she can get off on being melodramatic, so can I. Now move over, we've got to get home fast due in large parts to my actions just now. Yeah, bad job, dude. Yeah, for basically saying like, hey, I really get off on melodrama and I'm willing to shoot my own cause in the foot in its service. I, I feel like I kind of had to go with him. Did you go with Dick or? I, I went with Dick just to be contrary. I mean, clearly because of all the reasons we just described, Briander is like, you kind of have to vote for him. But there's just one panel in particular, I think it's maybe on page eight, where Dick is super bummed about Coriander getting married, and he's doing the make two fists and pull him down like you're singing a sad ballad or something. And it's the <laughs> scene where it's like, he's like, it's too late. <laughs> and he's just so much like double-fisted emotion in that one little panel. Oh, I couldn't picture the double-fist clench ballad singing until you did that just now, and now I totally know what you're talking about. It's powerful. <laughs> it's a power ballad. Mm-hmm. And the sun is, like, shining on him. It's very MTV 80s. Yeah, it's a very posed kind of internal turmoil that he's going through there. And then half of Joe's face in the background, <laughs> Joe just looks like he's like, ah, really? Fucking again? Either poop or get off the pot. Well, which might be another situation in which you're double fist clutched <laughs> with a tear in your <laughs> eye. Oh, and depending on your diet. That's not healthy. I will say it's a little bit harder for me to pinpoint some of the minutiae in this just because this issue does not have any numbered pages. I know you read a digital copy for this one, but were you in the trade paperback? No, I read it digitally, and I also 
could not find the page number, so I was just literally counting them, starting the one after the cover is one. Yeah, I had to do the same thing. But it is made easier by the fact that there are no ads in this, so you are at least able to count them off that way. Mm -hmm. Were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? They were pretty abstract for me, but yeah, one of them was the scene, and I think it's right after Commander accidentally broadcast to everybody how awful she is. What was timestampy about it to me was the way in a lot of these, like the 70s and 80s science fiction, the equipment is drawn really cool and really futuristic, but it's based pretty solidly on the technology that was available at the time. And in this case, it's the video cameras. Nice. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I love that phenomena. I was reading some old 60s comic books and having these advanced alien cultures use punch card technology for their space computers is just <laughs> always a delight to me. Yeah, there's one where there's like this little remote controlled or maybe even autonomous camera where it's got a little like jet and little antennas and it's flying around recording stuff, but it's also like this giant box that would hold the VHS tape inside of it. Ah, uh -huh, that's awesome. Yeah, I love like retrofuturism stuff like that. Yeah, it's pretty fun. There was that, and then just in general, the guys that are the warriors under commander's team or army, when it zooms in on them, there's just this real mix of 80s, kind of what I think of as heavy metal, fashion and what the future might look like gotcha there's one guy that really looked like a space rambo type guy nice did he have a headband yeah it's on page i think 17 okay yeah i see that i want to talk about the other person in that picture in a different category but <laughs> me too i get what you're talking about there yep so space rambo and uh 80s cameras I was able to find a kind of specific one. It's at the very end of the issue on the final page. The caption work says, In space, no one can hear you scream, which is the tagline for the movie Alien, which came out in 79. But the sequel to it came out in 86, Aliens, in the year that this comic book came out. So that phrase and that idea were kind of in the zeitgeist of the moment. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. When I read that, I thought, oh, man, that is super familiar, but I couldn't, uh, I was too intellectually lazy to look it up. So thank you. Oh, no problem. It is a weird page, though. The way that they set it up is they show the spaceship blowing up, and then they say, in space, no one can hear you scream. And then they cut to Dick and Joe and are like, but these guys aren't on space, so here's them screaming. Oh, that's true. It goes, no. And it literally says it echoes through the night. So that was my timestamp. Just a little nod to the Aliens franchise. Yeah, that's a good one. What the heck did those other buttons do, by the way, in that panel when she blows up the spaceship? I counted, there's like 15 or 16 buttons on that little control panel. Did they just all blow up different things? <laughs> I was like, man, what if she got the wrong one? What if she blew up her own ship? <laughs> I mean, maybe it's just different things that can happen on the ship. So like, there's probably a blow up the ship button there's a change the spaceship color to something embarrassing button <laughs> there's a release the space clowns into the ship button oh no oh well she's evil don't do that Ooh, there's a fuck up everyone's hair button 
Which she doesn't push that one because she's evil, but she's still a Tamaranian. And there are lines you do not cross. Some things you don't do, yeah. So we touched on this briefly, but sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion were most noteworthy to you? Yeah, so it it came up already uh, a little bit, but there's a dude with this really elaborate face-surrounding cowl headdress thing who's next to Space Rambo on page 17. I think that's a lady. Oh, okay. It's a good look. It is a good look. I liked her deal, too. Yeah, I called her the New Gods Rebel because she's got kind of Kirby-esque New Gods headgear and has like a combination of that and just like farmer insurgent going on. And it's a really cool look. It's blue and purple with an elaborate headgear and is pretty neat. And yeah, her Ramboed up buddy is also pretty nice. He's got like a sage green headband with long tassels and a sage green muscle shirt or maybe bodysuit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice beige backpack. Yeah, pretty good. I like that he remembered to bring a backpack. I feel like a lot of these rebels, they don't pack for the occasion. I know. And then once the battle's over, they're like, hey, you guys got any snacks? <laughs> Rambo's just like, uh, <laughs> I only brought enough for for me and my buddy with the headdress here. Yeah, I know after a big rebel insurgence, I'm always turning to people and being like, all right, who brought the orange slices? <laughs> yep. Seriously? Nobody? Ugh. The other thing I wanted to talk about is we saw most of Starfire's wedding attire in the last issue. The one addition to it this time seems to be her, like, ritualized wedding eyeshadow, which is pretty cool looking. She's got some rad, like, blue eyeshadow that is put on almost like the Road Warrior's face paint over the tops of her eyes, and it's really cool looking. Yeah, I was going to comment on that, too. It even comes down the side of her face on her cheekbones and curves under her eyes. Yeah, there's like little ram's horns almost coming off of the side of it. Yeah, super elaborate. And yeah, very festive. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's a good look. Any other fashion? Just one other warrior guy. He maybe came up before. He looks kind of familiar, but he also had a very like... uh, late 70s hard rockin' look. I think it's on page 7. It's the one where Commander is on this rock outcropping and her troops are everywhere coming towards the viewer. And this dude has a Lucha Libre kind of looking helmet and a mustache and flowing dark hair and like a weird leather shoulder cape strap thing. Wait, the guy closer to Commander or the guy in the lower left-hand corner? The guy in the lower left-hand corner. Yeah, he's got like a bondage mask and a Fu Manchu Mm -hmm. and then like 70s bass player hair. Yeah, totally. Like after the battle, he's going to go to his Foghat cover band practice. Absolutely. That is a really tight look for him. The only other thing I wanted to mention is on the following pages, we see a brief shot of the Papadopoulos parents watching the wedding. Mm -hmm. And they say that they're from the southern states and... The dad particularly has kind of like a, I don't know, like Leonard Skinner vibe going for himself. Like I could see him being from the southern states. I know it's Tamaran, not the United States, but uh, he's got a southern rock look and it's a pretty good one. Mm -hmm. And his wife, Queen Salja, has, I don't know what you call it, but like a jeweled kind of thing on her face hanging down on either side of her nose from the crown that she's wearing. Like a necklace, 
that starts in your forehead. <laughs> yeah, and goes over your cheeks. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting look, and, and I kind of like it. It's like she decorated herself like a Christmas tree. Yeah, that, and uh, they've got noticeably darker green eyes that are matching in color from their accessories, which is a, a pretty darn good look. Yeah, it's a southern thing. Mm. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic has a Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad and who was your Beast Boy? For my Beast Boy, I had Dick for some of the reasons that we touched on earlier, but just largely he was pretty ineffective. Mm -hmm. And I uh, just seemed really like mopey and just getting back to his old way of doing things, which is just moping about kind of being a pain to be around yeah specifically i had dick for the oops forgot about the rebels my bad yeah i mean i guess that responsibility shared with the two other folks with him but yeah major screw up i think he was the one who said specifically oh my gosh i forgot afterwards yeah so i mean maybe reander was aware of there being some kind of wedding decorum that if you interrupt the couple while they're trying to Captain Planet, things will blow up. Mm -hmm. But from Dick's perspective, that was just like, oh, fuck, my girlfriend's getting married. This sucks. I'm going to mope real hard. Oh, fuck, I forgot. Rebels are coming to kill us all. Ack, hit. <laughs> That's what he says when he gets, when he gets shot. <laughs> he says, ack, hit. Yep, he Kathy's about it. Oh, ack, yep. Conversely, who did you have as your Aqualad? I went with uh, Joey because basically if he hadn't succeeded in jumping into that guard's body and getting them released, they wouldn't have escaped. I'm not going to say anything else would have really gone better because <laughs> once they got to the wedding, it all went to shit anyway. But at least he got him out of that scrape. Yeah, I had the same thing, although really the only difference is then they would have had an excuse. <laughs> Oh, so maybe he should be demoted for <laughs> robbing them of their excuse. Instead of, we showed up to warn you, but we forgot. Yeah, instead, they could have just been like, oh, we would have warned you, but we were tied up and unable to interrupt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to imagine that, that throughout the whole ceremony, Joe was just like jumping up and down and waving his <laughs> arms and being like pointing, making gun, gun shapes. Yeah, trying to get someone's attention so that he can make eye contact with them, but they're all watching the ceremony, and he's like, Jesus Christ! I mean, Zahal! Yeah. But I had him as my Aqualad as well. Wow. Rare occasion where we uh, line up on both sides. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite panel in this issue? I had a toss-up between two that we've already talked about. The first one, I called it Screaming Trio. <laughs> And that's the scream that's not in space that we can hear at the end. It's just a, a good panel and full of emotion. Agreed. And then uh, the other one is, I think it's page eight, and it's the Commander Rally where she's up on that rock outcropping and there's the space heavy metal looking army coming towards the viewer. And uh, I don't know, just has a really nice like 80s science fiction hard rock kind of look to it. Yeah, wouldn't have felt too out of place like on the cover of Heavy Metal Magazine, something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, which as a kid, too, was super titillating on account of oh, the yeah. nudity and whatnot. Sex robots of the future. Like, I don't know what this is all about, but <laughs> I'm going to keep reading. <laughs> no, I agree. That is a great panel. 
I think for my favorite, I'm going to go with the one where King Meander gives his shitty whiny speech. Just the perspective <laughs> of the giant tower that they are standing on when he's talking to the people beneath him saying, uh, I've been through so much. Can't I please still be your king? Which amazingly doesn't work for him. But yeah, just the perspective of the tower is, I think, really, really nicely done. And the whole panel is at kind of a Dutch angle. And I liked it a lot. Yeah, it's sweeping. Yeah, it gives you a sense of the scope and grandeur of the palace that they're in. And then also just the the panels that are over the top of it, where the audience is unequivocally, for the most part, telling him, no, fuck you, man. Bad job. This is a real kingdom. You did a bad job. I did? Yeah. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Mm. Wapoot! In the year of our Lord, 1987, as we do go from the year of the reprint, and the month of our Lord, April, what was Aqualad probably up to? Wapoot! Yeah, so... We all know Aqualad has a sea-strengthened body and is strong and athletic. I don't know if we've touched on also, though, his his interest in in sport of his uh, normal Earth-bodied friends. And uh, the NBA has more than a passing interest for him. However, on April 16th, he found himself really pretty worried because Michael Jordan had just uh, become only the second NBA player in history to score 3,000 points in a season. And he was like, oh my God, he's going to be really insufferable <laughs> after this. <laughs> what are we going to do? Somebody needs to bring Jordan down a notch. So he placed a call to somebody he admired a lot, Julius Winfield Irving II. Dr. J? Yep. Aqualad called up Dr. J and was just like, you got to do something to bring Jordan down a notch. He's, he's really going to gonna be too much after this. So he does this a day later by becoming the third player in NBA history to um, have a 30,000-point uh, uh, career record, which is pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. So we, we can't necessarily say that Aqualad was responsible for that, because this is obviously something that Julius Irving was going to do anyway. But... A little-known fact is that they actually used to play pickup together every now and then. And mm. Dr. J is kind of famous for the, you know, his, his like really above-the-rim leaping, jumping style of, of play, which is something that he did take a little bit of inspiration from uh, Aqualad, despite his uh, shorter stature. His C-strength and legs really allowed him to, to go above the rim like that. So it was a little something he picked up from uh, our buddy Aqualad. Right, and they do also have an aquatic connection, seeing as Dr. J starred in The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. <laughs> oh, man, it just keeps unfolding. Yeah, so they, they may be bonded over that as well. I bet they did. Well, that was one thing that Aqualad was probably up to. But it wasn't the only thing that he was up to. Other than that, he was uh, watching some television. Atlantis had just started getting the Fox Network undersea. And so he figured he would check that out. And he watched a show called Married with Children, which was debuting. That showed up first on April 5th. And he watched it and he was just like, this is so unrealistic. <laughs> Children sassing their parents? I've never seen a teenager behave that way. None of them want to build a new clubhouse. None of them are saying, uh, all us cats decided to 
slip until to the music you get hip build us a clubhouse like (laughs) what is even going on with kids today this is so unrealistic and so he wrote to fox and he was just like i i don't know what you're you're doing this is not the way teenagers behave towards their parents and unfortunately or in the long run i think fortunately there were some cross wires and the way that fox decided to interpret that was oh Kids are being disrespectful to their parents at an even younger age than that. Well, we were on the fence as to whether or not to air this one animated segment on the Tracy Ullman show, but this viewer seems to think that we should. So that is why on April 19th of 1987, the first Simpsons segment aired on the Tracy Ullman show, featuring preteens being disrespectful to their parents. And that was all in part due to Aqualad's hectoring of the TV network. Wow. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to in April of 1987. It's a good month for Aqualad. Yeah, sort of. I mean, he didn't particularly enjoy it, but I'm glad that we got the Simpsons out of it. Yeah, I guess it's a good month for us. Thanks, Aqualad. Yeah, nice work. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Corey. I'm glad that you're back from your interdimensional travels. Glad you're home safe and sound, even if we can't connect with each other physically. It's nice to know that you're home safe. Oh, thank you. It's good to good to be here. I appreciate it. And I hope that you listeners are, if you're able to, staying home safe too. Thanks for taking the time to listen. And uh, a lot of you have reached out to us over the past few weeks and checked in on us. And I just want to reassure you that we're doing okay. And it means the world to me that you've taken the time to reach out to us. If you'd like to get into touch with us, you can do so electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We also do have a post office box that's Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We actually got a really nice uh, care package from friend of the show, Devin Tuhey, recently. It had the Teen Titans Lost Annual, which is a 2008 issue of Teen Titans that was written by Bob Haney. Oh, nice. And is absolutely bonkers. It features John F. Kennedy fighting aliens in another dimension. It is peak Bob Haney, and uh, it was a lot of fun to read. Thank you very much for that. If you would like to support the show monetarily, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. Uh, if you do, you get access to a ton of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's a show about Howard the Duck that Lisa and I record. There should be a new episode of that out within this week. And also I've been making pretty much daily, sometimes more than one daily. Sometimes I'll miss a day if I'm working on editing one of these shows. But uh, I've been making a lot of little video reviews and uh, just chatting with you guys that way. So if you're looking for something to do or some extra content, then check those out. There's also some extra bonus podcasts that Corey and I have recorded. And there's some other stuff up there too. But mostly supporting the show on Patreon is a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate what we're doing and would like us to be able to keep doing it. It's been incredibly humbling lately to hear from so many of you that you value the 
very fundamentally silly thing that Corey and I make for you. So thank you for that. If you'd like to support the show in a non-monetary way, a great way to do that is to leave a review of the show on uh, whatever podcast listening device you are using uh, or, you know, any place where you can leave reviews for shows or just chat it up and spread the word. I always appreciate that. We've gotten some really nice new reviews on iTunes and I think a couple on Stitcher as well. And uh, that's a really great way to help people find the show and let them know that it's worth listening to. And, you know, also makes me read nice words about myself and then I uh, get a burst of endorphins. And, And that's fun, right? Yeah. You can say nice things about Corey, too, if you got some extra time. Yeah. Everybody likes a burst endorphin. Sure. You know, it's a fun way to mispronounce that word. Endolphin. Yeah. You know, try that out. Other ways you can uh, get into touch with us. There's the Facebook, the Tweetor, the Tumblr, um, Instagram, all of them things. And yeah, I don't know. Just uh, just keep in touch. It's nice. Be nice. Oh, and speaking of nice, for a nice time, you guys should check out the new episode of Garden Plots with Skeletor that I think should be coming out the same day as this podcast. That show is pleasant and brilliant and hilarious, and you should listen to it. And remember, in space, no one can hear you say, like and subscribe! Oh. <laughs> yeah, all right. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.